We're with consultant psychiatrist, Dr. Philip George. Thank you so much, Dr. Philip, for joining us for today's Mind Matters. Now, uh, let's get straight to the first article that we found, which is quite interesting. It's all about mental health of pregnant women during this COVID-19 pandemic. So, I mean, pregnancy itself is already something which is filled with anxiety and uncertainty, right, Doc? Especially for first-time moms. Now, even more so with the COVID-19 pandemic and changes in some hospital policies, the fear of contracting the virus or passing it on to your baby. You know, how do pregnant women take care of their mental health during this time? Yeah, so actually the pandemic has actually changed the landscape for many patient populations. Uh, So not just people who are pregnant, but also others. And that includes, you know, things like accessing your doctor doing the MCO uh, or even having regular antenatal visits, uh, which can be a challenge. Uh, And of course, the pandemic itself can create more anxiety and panic. Uh, So pregnant mothers will definitely benefit from you know, contact with their uh, gynae or the obstetrician to understand what can be done during periods of crisis uh, when they do need some attention and how they can go about to, to be able to uh, receive that. Uh, they need to also maybe start to limit exposure to social media and news about the pandemic, uh, especially in the later part of the day. Uh, so that they ensure promotion of good quality sleep mm. and you know, not get too uh, engulfed in this whole uh, you know, negative uh, information and details about things as well. They need to maybe also look at trying mental health techniques like meditation, mindfulness, deep breathing, exercise. And there are apps that can assist in this. Some of the apps have actually gone to you know, uh, make it accessible on, for free. And so they can actually, you know, uh, access these things as well. It's important to also look at maintaining good relationships uh, with family, friends, and, you know, maintaining that even with the MCO through phone calls or video chat uh, and doing that regularly as well. Uh, having a consistent sleep schedule, ensuring that they get enough sleep and also working on a healthy diet is something that's really essential during this period as well. Mm-hmm. There are actually online support groups, forums for pregnant mothers, and of course, there's online counseling or phone support networks that can help as well when they're feeling overwhelmed or too anxious during this period. So you're saying that technology in the, ter- in the forms of applications like meditation applications and even um, online uh, counseling and whatnot can help. But what if um, technology is not accessible to this pregnant woman? Like what else can she do? <laughs> well, actually, there, there are things that the family can support and help in that process. Families and partners can actually help by first understanding and equipping themselves with information and knowledge about anxiety and stress during pregnancy. It's common for this to happen, and it can be even more during this period of lockdown and of course with the pandemic that that we're experiencing as well. They need to understand their role. Uh, They're not a mental health professional, so they're not going to be giving advice and, you know, uh, but they up. will, <laughs> but they will, especially the aunties and the grandmas and the mother. And that gives you even more stress. <laughs> right. 
So I think they need to realize that they're more there to provide support and uh, they can maybe provide some practical and emotional advice. Uh, but really more than that, they may need to uh, first validate you know, the, the person's feelings and emotions and worries. So, you know, not play it down and say, oh, come on, forget about it, don't think about it. And it, it's real and it's happening and they need to be there to be able to support them during this period. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think they will definitely help the pregnant mother by engaging in activities that can help with managing stress and anxiety. You know, ensuring an adequate and proper diet uh, doing exercise together, doing breathing exercises, learning mental health skills, you know, together as a parent as well, and not just letting them to, you know, deal with it on their own. Uh, finally, they need to also make sure they they let their partner know that they're not alone and that they will always be supported. All right. Great. Let's move on to our, our next article, yeah. an equally interesting one. Um, This is from the New York Times and it's uh, about the coronavirus lockdown. Um, This psychiatrist actually said you have to look for meaning and not happiness and cultivate this thing which he calls a tragic optimism that will help weather this crisis and then we can grow from it. So doctor, I guess the first question is like, what does it mean by looking for meaning and not happiness? Yeah, so I think one of the things that uh, a a large survey in the U.S. showed was that about 50% of uh, Americans feel that COVID-19 has affected their mental health. Mm. Uh, And that can happen when we're under stress and, you know, we're in a period of adversity. Uh, But we need to identify different ways of dealing with adversity. In fact, most studies suggest people who go through adversity a majority of them actually come out stronger. They're able to deal with it and move on. So it actually creates growth. So rather than looking for happiness and, you know, I want to change my life to make myself feel happy like I was before this whole pandemic happened, it'll be better to look into the moment and identify what are the different things in our life that can bring new meaning to our life. So the purpose of our life may change because of this new pandemic and the uh, MCO, but we can find new meaning in that. For example, we can start to look at, well, now I have time to maybe do regular daily exercise. That's something that I couldn't do in the past. And I have that opportunity now. Now that can be a positive thing for ourselves and for our lives as well. We can also look at, well, now I have the opportunity to focus and think about my mental health, you know, not just uh, put it aside and think and, and be engrossed in work and traffic jams and everything else. Things have changed now to help us to focus on a new way of living as well. And so I think it's, it's about a human capacity to turn negative life aspects into something that's positive and constructive. And that's the true meaning of things that when we experience, we can build from it, you know? So, you know, like most people who go through a bad event or trauma, they may experience, well, not most, but some may experience post-traumatic stress. But we can actually look at this as a way to develop our post-traumatic growth. And we can, you know, maybe 
find meaning in the suffering, like a deeper sense of spirituality, uh, maybe more appreciation for things in life that we took for granted, like the clear skies and you know the silent roads and uh, and the new pursuit that we can engage in. You know? So it's not being happy through difficult times, but rather finding meaning and a purpose to it. Nice. Now, how can we actually cultivate this tragic optimism? I like this word. Like we have what to look that? at things positively, yeah. but as well as tragically. tragically. I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, it was Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor and a psychiatrist, who actually came up with this whole uh, terminology mm-hmm. and focus. He suggested that tragic optimism is the ability to maintain hope and find meaning in life despite pain, loss, and suffering. So most individuals after a crisis can develop a newfound sense of purpose and develop deeper relationships and have greater appreciation of life. So it's not the adversity that leads to this growth, uh, but actually more of how people respond to it. And that's what tragic optimism actually refers to. Mm. It's about searching and finding positive meaning. So our focus should change, you know, from uh, chasing happiness to actually instead finding meaning and purpose during this period. I'm nothing but tragic optimism then. (laughs) Find meaning. Yeah. Optimism, that's the main important yeah. thing. Yeah, staying positive. Yeah. But I like what you said earlier way. though. <laughs> because you said at some point, people, in maybe six months' time or eight months' time, people are going to go, you know what? I wish it was yeah. like the, the lockdown again, no, tr- no cars on the road and everything. Yeah. Malaysians will definitely, people will say that. They will do that. You know, they'll complain yeah. about the traffic and stuff like this. Yeah, but that's not finding new meaning already. What? You're going back to your old ways already. Yeah, this yeah. is wrong meaning. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, hopefully we can take something from this, you know, we build into our lifestyle that, you know, we went through this and we can actually, you know, appreciate things a bit better. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to our next article. Um, It's more about handling um, students, more of these uh, higher learning institution students, uh, handling their mental health during this MCO. And this university have actually started e-counseling for students. Um, I guess our question here is how effective is e-counseling or these online therapy sessions? Are they, are they as effective as a face-to-face therapy session or counseling session? Yeah, so we have e-counseling in our university as well, uh, online counseling for students. Uh, and we also have available for our staff and faculty as well, because it's not just, you know, teenagers or young adults who go through stress, even uh, older individuals and uh, you know people uh, will go through. I mean, the general population will go through stress and anxiety during this period, and they need to be able to access uh, understanding and ways to deal with that. Uh, online counseling and phone counseling has been available long before COVID nineteen. You know, we've had Befrienders and Lifeline and many other helplines that have shown to be you know, of considerable benefit for those in crisis. Uh, so, you know, some of the benefits are accessibility, uh, you know, so people from remote areas or, you know, you can actually call any time of the day sometimes and come, uh, you know, helplines. Uh, you can send a message at any time as well. Uh, it seems to be 
something that uh, young people find more accessible. In fact, we did a survey looking at help-seeking behaviors of uh, different populations, and we found that young people, especially university students, uh, were more prone to think of online methods of looking for help rather than face-to-face -face as the better option for them. Uh, the other benefit, of course, is convenience, and you, know, you, you don't have to worry about scheduling and making appointments or traveling. Uh, and then it can sometimes ensure anonymity. You know, people don't have to give their details and say who they are. And of course, it reduces the social stigma, which is pretty rife in Malaysia. Looking for help, you know, people are so full of stigma, trying to reach that out. But there are challenges. And that includes, you know, the risk of confidentiality, security breach, especially if the security software is, you know, obscure or not up to date. Um, in therapy, we have verbal and non-verbal cues, things that people may say or, you know, the, their behavior or their you know, body language that helps us understand how to go about in helping them with their problems as well. So that can be absent sometimes in this online uh, platform. Uh, it's also essential in understanding the communication. Uh, I mean, these verbal cues and non-verbal cues help us to understand the communication that people will have. Of course, technological, technological difficulties and internet access can be a challenge for some. And finally, there are ethical issues as well. You know, if things are being recorded or, you know, is it covered under license of practice, indemnity, these are things that, you know, we haven't actually really had an appropriate answer to. So in this time of crisis, maybe some of these helplines uh, can work without those necessary ethical issues. But in the long run, I think those are areas that need to be uh, reviewed and reflected upon. Mm. Now, how about what else can these students of higher learning institution do if they're going through the MCO stuck in their host hostel because this is uh this is where this article came in because there are a bunch of students in in this higher institution that are stuck in this host hostel and they cannot go anywhere and they cannot go home um so what can these students do to sort of um keep their mental health in check well i think it's the same uh, sort of philosophy that we discussed earlier finding you know uh, sort of meaning and purpose during adversity. And uh, so it's a change in mindset. Uh, one is basically building a routine, uh, maintaining and ma uh, building a routine that incorporates things that help with you know, their, uh, their studies as well as their mental health resilience. Um, I think the advice is actually the same as for adults as well. I mean, even if we're mm -hmm. Not in quarantine, we're at home, we can maybe only come out for essentials. It's almost like a quarantine for most people as well. So, you know, being aware that we can actually change how our day is structured and built and focus on things that are more positive in our day uh, would be really helpful and useful. Uh, I wrote a paper on uh, managing the pandemic uh, as the university student, uh, which got published in a magazine and it actually outlines the different steps that people can use. Uh, for example, you know, exercise regularly and then finding things like 
uh, you know, a gratitude or a gratitude journal, building a journal that actually lists out things that you're grateful for in the day, uh, restricting your social feed and news input about the pandemic, uh, you know, restricting video games and other pursuits that, you know, you may be over-engaging in. So having a, a balance in activities, I think all this leads to helping people cope with quarantine and isolation as well. All right. Are you are you a, are you a fan of e-counseling at all? Do you uh, is it one of those things? It's like, un, push comes to shove, we can't go anywhere. So now do e-counseling. But are you more about face to face? Yeah, I'm more face to face. I don't really believe in e-counseling very much. Uh, there has to be that personal sort of uh, you know connection, and uh, that doesn't happen on e-counseling. I mean, on a gadget or on a device, you're not sure if the person, you know, is really who he or she says he is. Yeah. You know? And uh, so there's a lot of uncertainties in that whole communication. Of course, during a crisis, it can be very helpful for someone to just ventilate and talk about things. But if you're looking at therapy, that means, you know, long-term treatments for an illness, I think it may not actually have as much benefit. Great. Because if it's for me, e-counseling, and then my line drops up, be even more stressed. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm like, oh yes, yes. I'm I'm feeling a lot better. Line drops. Ah. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah, and then somebody talks about their, you know, traumatic past, and then oh, I didn't hear you. Can you repeat yourself oh, again? Oh no, and then you have to repeat. <laughs> That's the worst. Oh my god, yeah. And it started crying already. And then, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, could you cry for me again? Okay, cool. So yeah. let's move on to the next one. Yeah. All right. Um this they conducted this survey in Japan and they said that people who are working from home has um has more mental health issues at this point in time. So Working from home has actually worsened their mental state with some saying that it was difficult to separate their work and personal lives and others say that they weren't able to do enough exercise and they have difficulty communicating with their co-workers. Um, I mean, why do some people find it so hard to work from home, right? It's essentially pretty much the same thing except that you don't have to go into the office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, the, the, the thing is, when your home becomes your uh, work environment, <clears throat> separating the two becomes the challenge. Oh. Uh, so I think it's important for us to establish a system so that work can be done in a planned manner and almost you know, some semblance to what we used to do before. I mean, set the work hours, wake up at the same time change into something that looks like workloads, not <laughs> wearing pajamas or you know, walk around. Uh, I like wearing pajamas. <laughs> you should try wearing that to the studio. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the way you dress can influence your mood. Uh, and then enforce, you know, timings. I think that's really essential. Enforce the time that you start work. Enforce an end time as well. Because the tendency when you start working from home is you don't stop. You know, you, well, I haven't finished this task. Let me continue. Let me try and finish it by today. And your bosses say, come on, you've got to set, submit it. But you've got to be firm about, you know, your end time. You know, because uh, then the boundary just gets blur. You don't know what work and home is anymore. And, you know, then you get too engrossed in work and 
and you don't have the time for home and for yourself and for your exercise as well. So I, I think it's yeah important to fix that sort of uh, boundaries as well as have short you know breaks and during the breaks maybe stretch, do some exercise, moving and all that helps to stimulate some endorphins which helps you to build more you know uh, focus concentration and of course put controls on distraction you know tv social media uh, all that you, you need to set times for all that to be engaged with and then make sure your workspace is separate from your rest space you know so you want to have a space that is conducive for work as well uh, and of course during that time if you have children then you need to also you know negotiate with them talk to them about well look mommy's going to work or daddy's going to work and they're going to do this from this time to this time i've got activities for you to do and this is what you're going to be doing and then we'll work and then we'll play together you know so hopefully yeah. <laughs> uh, well, well I, I think practice you know makes perfect so eventually you'll get there yeah i think it's different also, yeah go ahead i think it's different for people who they use like let's say i don't know authors who work at home and then they're writing a book and then they they're just used to working from home but it's different yeah. when you're in a case like forced this where you're you're forced to right yeah absolutely so yeah if if it's uh it's a change from the norm uh sometimes you know our mindset will also determine you know well this is not the norm this is not what i'm used to so why am i doing this you know Maybe I, I, I can't put in everything. But the fact is, I mean, this may be a norm for a while. And we may need to get used to this. And there's no reason why people can't. I mean, well, I mean you build more skills to deal with this better. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think instead of fighting it, we should embrace it. And find the positives out of actually this whole process of working from home. Yeah, JD really, embraced yeah. it already and he's I like, I, I, I don't want to go to the studio anymore even after this MCO is lifted. <laughs> That's going to be the next toxic. Pajamas all day long. It's brilliant. You know what? I think what people miss, it's not so much about mental state. Doc, you got to back me up on this. I don't know. But it's actually more about the office gossip, isn't it? <laughs> well, some people miss the canteen. <laughs> 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 all right all right our final article um okay doctor so at what point do you think do you say that yes your mental state is bad enough that you need to take medication for it you know some people think that yes they can handle it while others are concerned that they might get worse if they take meds to deal with their mental health issues. Yeah. So there's no yardstick to say that, yeah, uh, at this point, I need medication. How do we know that it's bad enough and you need medication? medication. Yeah. So there's a big difference between mental health and mental illness. Mental health is what everybody goes through. I mean, everybody right now throughout this pandemic is going through mental health issues. There are good periods that are poor periods. Periods when they feel really upset and anxious and then after that they feel a little positive and maybe do some something some other activity to help change their mind but with mental illness it's a continuum it is you know feeling down and sad continuously 
things that are affecting their sleep and appetite. It's affecting their work and their connect uh, and what you call relationships. So it is an illness just like any other illness. And with illnesses, there are three main components. There's the biological component, which is the body and the mind. And then there's the psychological and social component. So depending on the level of the illness, if it's moderate to severe, there are neurochemical changes which can't go away just by willing it away or you know, just by hoping that things will change or engaging in some positive activity. We need to realign those neurochemicals. And that's when medication plays a role. So we have in our, you know, sort of criteria for deciding mental illnesses, identification points for moderate and severe mental illnesses. And in those cases, medication plays an important role in recovery. Mm. But how can, can just mental health issues turn into a mental health illness if it's not, you know... Handled properly. Absolutely. So there are many factors that lead to mental illnesses. I mean, genetics is one, childhood experiences. So those are vulnerability factors, things that happened a long time ago that make us more vulnerable. And then the trigger for most mental illnesses is mental health stress. So when our mental health is not uh, attended to, we're overwhelmed by it, and we're not you know, sort of uh, overcoming it, then it can lead to a mental illness. Now, sometimes poor mental health can lead to a physical illness like hypertension or diabetes or even heart disease. Uh, and sometimes it can lead to a mental illness. They're all illnesses. But when an illness occurs, we need to attend to it in that whole format of biopsychosocial medication and psychological treatments and social therapies as well. Okay, so it's not just that uh, mental illness can, uh, it doesn't arise only once you're born. It doesn't, it's not an inborn thing. It can arise at any point in your life, right? Mental illness, mental illness is that yeah. why I understand? So, so we all have different risks. So, you know, if you have a genetic risk, if there's a family member with a mental illness, then maybe your risk is a little bit more than somebody else. But we can take action to help reduce the risk by working on our mental health. So the more we invest in our mental health, with this, which is everyone's issue, then the less there is a risk of it developing into a mental illness or a medical illness as well. Yeah. Well, I guess for a lot of people who have never taken um, medication for their mental health issues, there's also a fear that, you know, they might get dependent on the medication and without it... Um, they will spiral out of control or that there's a catch-22. If you, once you start taking medication, you cannot stop. Yeah. Yeah, so basically with uh, most medications that we use, uh, we look at first the risk versus benefit. So all medications have side effects. But when we identify if the, the what you call the benefits are far more or outweigh the risk, then medication is a safe option. And most medication that we use, especially like antidepressants and mood stabilizers, they're not addictive. Mm. They're not dependence forming. People don't crave for it. Like they miss a day and say, oh, I need it, I need more. Yeah. Uh, and they don't increase the dose when they want willy-nilly as well. Uh, but they may have a psychological fear if they were to come off the medication. 
And that we normally work through with the patients themselves. We help them to learn to grow without the medication and build their own life skills to deal with preventing a relapse as well. Okay. Thank you so much, doctor. Thank you. Thanks, guys. <laughs>